Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The government has now revealed its plan to ease the lockdown and it involves three phases, five tests, three steps and five alert levels. You can see why people might have been confused. But is it the right plan? We're going to take a look at how it could work out, where the problems might lie and what happens next as the government tries to get people back to work. For now, and at least until October, the government is going to be spending billions of pounds a month in paying people's wages. That was this week's second big government announcement from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. But having extended the coronavirus job retention scheme, how will he wind it down? And headlines this week were asking how he will pay for it when the crisis eases, that is how we will all pay for it. Is that an inescapable question or irrelevant or premature? For once, we're going to take a break from this crisis to look at the last big focus of government energy, Brexit, seemed some time ago. A new IFG paper this week argues that the civil service was damaged by the battles between the government and parliament. We're going to chat to the report's author about the long-term effects on the way that government works. Once you've listened to this episode, do seek out our sister podcast, IFG Live, brings you all our events and discussions. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get inside briefing, or of course at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And so back to today. I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Martin, the Times columnist and editor of Reaction. Ian, how are you? Hi, not too bad. Just, just about getting through lockdown. Good. The last time we asked you on, I think you were having to self-isolate, but now it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're all um, uh, isolated. I saw you tweet yesterday that PMQ's Parliamentary uh, Prime Minister's Questions is now a must-watch event. Why were you saying that? Because, uh, well, because Boris, I think, struggles with the format. And because Keir Starmer really knows how to needle Boris and knows how to ask very precise questions, it's just exposing that Boris is not suited to that format at all. And it's made worse by the fact, of course, that there are not herds of Tory backbenchers who can just sort of wave their order papers and jeer and, and, and shout and bray to cover up when he hasn't answered the, the question properly. So it is, it's exposing Boris, and for that reason, it's become gripping. And just on that, do you think that, as Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, leader, leader of the Commons, said this week that Parliament should return from, uh, from this summer, should be sitting in person, and tough luck if MPs can't make it? I do think in this case, I, th- I think Jacob is, is, is right that Parliament has a, a leadership responsibility um, all, in all sorts of other trades and walks of life. People, people are being expected to get back to, back to work gradually and over the course of the next couple of months. But I, I, I do think Parliament and politicians will have to lead. The Cabinet should lead as well. The Cabinet um, should, should uh, you know, show, show an example and meet in one room rather than on, uh, rather than on Zoom. Despite Brilliant the risk to them. We, we, might, we might come on to those questions in, in the, the how to get back to work question, because obviously it's left several members of the Cabinet um, ill already, including the PM. Back with us also is our Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow, and our Brexit Programme Director, Joe Owen. Welcome to both of you. Let's start with the exit strategy. Uh, which the Prime Minister announced on Sunday, and of course a 50-page document then coming out uh, um, the next day and with a lot of more detail about how to get back to work that then followed um, in in different bites, if you like. And there were big challenges promptly thrown at this um, uh, from all sides, from uh, uh, about Jeremy Hunt on testing, Keir Starmer on care homes and Nicola Sturgeon uh, uh, about whether the devolved nations are going to go their own way. We're, We're going to look at all this. 
Joe and Gemma, you too put together our report on how to ease the lockdown, which we put out a week before Boris Johnson set out his plan. What was your view of his statement? I have to say, when we put together our report on thinking about how you devise an exit strategy, I was struck at the time by just how difficult that is to do. There are lots of very difficult decisions that the government has to make about how to prioritise trying to control the disease versus trying to get the economy back up and running, trying to give kids the opportunity to learn in school at the same time as not wanting to expose teachers um, to the virus, for example. And that so many of the things you would like to know to decide what answer is are unknown at the moment. We don't know exactly how the transmission of the disease is going to pick up if we relax some of the restrictions. We don't know how long immunity lasts. We don't know exactly how long-lasting any damage is from the lack of education that kids are getting at the moment. So I was struck by how difficult it was and I had a lot of sympathy for the government in the challenge of trying to put together an exit strategy and communicate that to the public. And we said in our report that it wouldn't be possible to have a grand plan that would give people all the answers now about how their lives are going to change and how businesses are going to be able to get back up and running over the next few months. Even despite all of that, I was hugely underwhelmed by what came out from the government on Sunday and in the document on Monday. It left so many questions unanswered, both about what the government's priorities really are um, as they approach this lockdown and how those priorities and how the evidence they're looking at at the moment has really informed the decisions that they've so far made. Um, We had things like a five-point alert scale that is going to be um, decided upon by a new joint biosecurity centre. But it's very unclear how, for example, that alert level translates into the sorts of social and economic restrictions that are going to be in place. And that's unlike what we've seen other governments manage to do. Other countries have a much more direct mapping between if the alert level is two, then this means you can do X and you can't do Y. Um, so I was very underwhelmed. And what about the trade-offs? Uh, just, just digging into that a bit. I mean, the trade-offs between, say, uh, health and the economy. The, 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 the Prime Minister's statement and the report in particular went into a lot of detail saying, look, we're weighing up all these things, all these things that people have been talking about. Uh, we're taking these into account. I think it's positive that there was a, an acknowledgement that more than just trying to minimise deaths from coronavirus is now shaping government decisions. But it still did far less than it could have done to explain why given the way that they're thinking about those other issues, why the government has chosen to allow people to do things yesterday, such as go back to workplaces if they can't work from home, but not allow them to do other things. And it's without being clear about why some of those things were chosen as the first steps yesterday, I think it's very hard for people to predict where the government goes from here. And so, I mean, for example, from yesterday, it is possible for most workplaces, including things like nurseries, to open back up again. Um, But schools are not reopening because the document says that at the moment it thinks the transmission risk from that is too high. There was very little evidence spelt out about what has informed their judgment about the distinction between those two things, for example. Joe, Joe, what do you you reckon? I agree with all of that. I mean, to come in with a bit of a kind of a counterbalance and um, I guess some of the reasons this is so difficult. I think um, you could, first of all, you could see the broad outlines of the plan, right? Which was that in the short term, not much really changed. There was some tweaks to rules around what you could do outside. Um, 
But actually, a lot was about encouraging people to make use of the leeway that already existed in the rules and saying, actually, some of these places that have closed down, businesses that shut down, didn't need to under the original rules. And we're now encouraging you to reopen and insert social distancing rules to make the most of the leeway that exists. And so you could see the kind of the phasing of the plan was um, at short term, it was minor tweaks in making use of the leeway that already exists and then some signposting to the sorts of steps that we might see when there's greater confidence um, about um, the, the, the virus being under control. I think the plan massively suffered in communication. Um, and in part, I think it's because it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, most people don't usually tune into a prime minister's statement thinking, this is going to tell me what I can and cannot do tomorrow and next week and for the months to come. Most, I think the only people who usually tune in thinking that are probably journalists wondering what they're going to have to write the next day. This time you had, what, 27 million people odd tuning in thinking, I am looking for the level of detail that can tell me and my personal circumstances what I can do this week. And that is a completely different type of communication to how these prime ministerial statements, white papers, the kind of tasks that they're usually set up to do. And I think, again, you know, the, the communication slightly suffered because of all of the briefings that had gone on the week before about what could and couldn't change. And people were looking for a level of detail that the government just wasn't really intending to put out. And I think the fact that it came at 7pm on a Sunday and then newspapers, head, front pages were out within three hours, you could immediately see some of the confusion. I think the Guardian's front page was talking about lockdown release while the mail was saying the handbrake is still on. And I think that was a challenge, just getting hold of the kind of message, if you like, which just led to greater confusion. And on some of the, the key points as well, which is about people going back to work and whether it be safe to go back to work. Obviously, we had all kinds of uh, pictures of people heading confidently off to garden centres and tennis courts and golf courses. But the, the key stuff about back to work uh, was where the controversy was. Ian, that, that's the IFG musing, if you like. What did you make of it? And what do you, more difficult question, what, what, is, what is it reasonable to expect of the government? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it was always going to be more difficult. It's an easier message to uh, tr to transmit. Simply stay at home unless you really have to. You're unless you're a key worker in the following categories. Don't don't go out or only go out once a day. But even having accounted for that, it was uh, as as Joe said, really badly communicated. I mean, Boris is a is a journalist by trade, and he should have remembered one of the oldest uh, rules in newspapers, which is don't do anything complicated or controversial or difficult on a Sunday for Monday, by which I mean on a Sunday, newspapers are run with a, a skeleton staff, is usually follow-ups to what's been in the Sunday papers, and you're running with a, a small operation, so you shouldn't launch a major investigation or a, or, 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 or a big story on that day. So it was just weird that Sunday was chosen and they hadn't mm. worked out. You said, I wouldn't quite call it the B team, but the editor probably isn't there, and there's, a, yeah. there's fewer no people to look at. What who, are, who do a brilliant job um, editing Sunday for Monday. On, I don't, I don't want to lure papers. you into that trap. Yes, precisely. Uh, and it's usually rotated. But e even things like you, you wouldn't on a newspaper, you wouldn't have the full legal team 
around. So he wouldn't want to do anything that, 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 that ran risks. And I think that's something he should have borne in mind, done it on the, the Monday or the Tuesday, or actually the whole, the communication spoke to a bigger story of a failure in decision-making. And I think he would have been much better realizing that the story was getting out of control on the Wednesday or Thursday. Should probably have con- used COBRA, which has become diminished uh, as a decision-making body. That would have helped him bind in the devolved powers, uh, the devolved what, administration. What was the failure in decision-making, in your well, view? I, I think it goes right back to the beginning of when Boris was ill. The, the, the structure that was chosen, and I understand why Mark said, well, the cabinet secretary did it, was that there would be the four key cabinet ministers the, who were each running the, the ministerial committees, Gove, um, Raab, Hancock, and Sunak. That that's really where power lay with Raab sort of deputising for the prime minister. And then the real, the rest of the cabinets kind of out of the loop, and many of them did feel last weekend they were out of the loop and they hadn't seen the document. It was printed, I think, the 50-page document before they even discussed it. So you had a... You had power concentrated in a small group for the devolved administrations whose whose the differences are not really that vast. They felt that they had not been properly included. I think he should have got ahead head of it on the Wednesday or Thursday by saying, look, it's ridiculous to wait until Sunday. Let's meet in a COBRA format now, agree what the differences are going to be across the UK, work out a communication strategy, and then go to Parliament probably on the Thursday or Thursday or Friday and got ahead of it and published the documents simultaneously. Now, for reasons we can, we can go into to do with personnel, structure, Boris's personality, none of that happened and you ended up pretty shambolic. I mean, Gemma, if you look at what I think we can call the core aim of this, uh, of the Prime Minister's message, which was the back to work, cautiously, but, but, but back to work. How do you think that succeeded? And what are the kind of dangling questions in the way of safety, transport, employers' liability, all this stuff? I think there was a bit of a problem with the messaging, that there was a delay between, well, there were several problems with messaging, but firstly, that on the Sunday, Boris Johnson seemed to be suggesting that people should be going back to work on Monday. And then on Monday, it was clarified that actually they meant back to work on Wednesday, um, which was left some confusion. So that was one of the problems. There was also then a delay between that and setting out the sort of more detailed guidance for different types of workplaces about how they should approach trying to make themselves coronavirus safe. Um, that has now been set out in more detail, but I think there still remains a bit of a question about who is taking responsibility for certifying, agreeing, deciding that a workplace is safe to go back to. There is clearly concern on the part of workers about whether or not it really is safe for them to go back to their workplaces. Um, Employers are no doubt concerned about the extent to which they are taking on liability um, by encouraging people back into the workplace. Have they done enough to keep their workers safe? What happens if people do become ill again? Um, for reasons that could be related to their workplace or could be related to other things. And to what extent is the government taking a lead in saying, if employers meet these criteria, 
we are telling you that it is safe for you to return to work and we are encouraging you or either with carrot or stick that you should be going back and doing that. Joe, jo, do you think uh, the government's met its own tests? What are the government's tests is the kind of interesting question. We know about the five tests. Then I think there were five principles. There's also five alert levels and we now have three phases and three steps. So working out which of those kind of takes precedence at any point is a bit of a challenge. Um, I mean, the five tests that they'd set out earlier, right, about guiding lockdown decisions, which included um, ensuring there was enough PPE, the NHS wasn't get, going to get overwhelmed and avoiding a kind of second wave. We wrote in our in our paper uh, a week or so ago that that wasn't really, it wasn't a good enough guide for guiding exit decisions. I mean, and I don't think it was designed to be. This is about defining when the right jumping off point is, when you can feel comfortable to start easing restrictions. Um but like Gemma said, um, what we didn't really get from this document was much clarity on exactly how those decisions on easing will be taken. We got some greater insight to the government thinking around balancing these multiple objectives around um, preventing harm from coronavirus, preventing harm from other medical issues, people not going to hospital as a result of coronavirus, also the economic and social harm. And we got a sense of all of these different objectives that are not reflected in the kind of five tests the government laid out. But what will be be difficult to try and understand, and I think the government will need to lay out more detail on, is what tests, if you like, to, to trying to avoid confusion and go Matt's test, but what tests will the government um, apply to each of its decisions when it decides to lift measures or not. Um, and I think here, this is where I, you could say that the, this new joint biosecurity centre is going to play a very important role. It seems like the role... Except we don't know what it is. No, exactly. We don't know exactly what it is. But what it seems to be doing is, whereas SAGE, the government's um, uh, route for scientific advice at the moment, is very much a kind of model for scientists, experts to come together and discuss some of the big challenges, this joint the Joint Biosecurity Centre is about um, combining the scientific advice with official advice and actually making it more or trying to provide a route that actually eases decision making as opposed to just offering up evidence. And so that will be a really important thing uh, to try and understand more about. But like you said, we're still not entirely sure how it works. And despite the government putting out some um, slightly dodgy graphics with equations in them we don't really have much clarity on how government is going to be weighing up all of these small decisions that it's going to have to take um, over the next few weeks and months and the point you make in that and how it's sort of um validating that the safety ian just as we, we wrap up this uh this this point about uh, discussing the um the exit strategy plan i wonder if if i could draw you into the point that Gemma was mentioning about who validates uh, safety of going back to work, if you like. Uh, you've got the government urging people to going back to work. You've got it referring to the health and safety executive. You've got the unions stepping into this uh, slight vacuum and saying, uh, no, no, we don't think it's safe. And um, we're going to be the arbiters of this. Uh, you've got employers quite worried about this and whether or not they're insured. And you've got well, perhaps a, the first standoff coming over uh, the government's desire for primary schools to reopen in, in June. Um, how do you think the government should cut through this, this nest of problems that seems to be building up there? I think he uh, rather missed a trick on, on Sunday 
course, hindsight is easy in all, in all of this. It's not very long hindsight, though. It's only four yeah. days or five but days. I think, I, think he, I think what he was trying, underneath what he was trying to say was that this is about, there's an element of personal responsibility here. We're moving from a draconian situation to a situation in which you are going to, you're going to have to exercise judgment. It's, it's imperfect there isn't a way to absolutely guarantee that you won't catch this or you won't spread it. There's all sorts of other stuff as a country we're doing on biosecurity and contact and tracing and all that sort of stuff, which, which is coming down the line, which should make it easier to manage future outbreaks. But we're going to have to ask you to use your own judgment, be sensible. Uh, I, th I think that's probably what's going to happen in, in the event, isn't it? I mean, we almost improvised our way into uh, pre-lockdown uh, we seem to have. We, we, we did, and there were lots of pictures of people still packed on the tube. You know, just a couple of days before the lockdown, and so on. But on the way out, it seems to me we've got these points about legal liability. Yes, we've got the the unions um, saying, "No, no, we're not playing politics, but we really have. Uh, you know, we're going to be the arbiters of whether it's safe or not uh, for our workers." Uh, we've uh, and and it seems to be much more difficult for the government to unpick this even as you said with an, a call for common sense it's really really difficult i do think though on the on the, when it comes to the teaching unions it'll be interesting to see to what extent public pressure and parent pressure makes a difference because people are clearly astonished that care workers um, bus drivers um, some of the lowest paid in the country have acted as public servants during the worst of the crisis. So, and I think David Blunkett spoke very well on this when trying to get the unions to see, to see sense that they do have duty as public servants to, um, to accept that there is some risk involved and they have to be adults about it and try and find a way back rather than simply saying, until we have a complete guarantee on safety, then we can't engage with the, the reopening plans. I don't think from the union's point of view, that's going to end up being a very popular, um, popular position. Let's turn to the other main pillar of this week, which was the Chancellor's statement. And uh, rather surprising, or at least uh, many people found it surprising, extension of the furlough scheme, whereas there had been a lot of talk before he spoke about the uh, uh, about uh, tapering it and so on. Gemma, was it a surprise to you? So in some ways, I think it wasn't a surprise because we'd already had a lot of debate over recent weeks about the, the notice that business need, businesses need to understand how long that support is going to be in place for. And if, if businesses want to um, initiate redundancy processes, they need effectively at least 45 days notice. So we'd had a couple of periods of it being extended one month, extended one month. Um, so in a sense, I think it was not so surprising that we saw the chance of perhaps just give a bit more clarity about slightly uh, longer term future for the scheme so businesses can think about how to um, make their decisions. Um, and in some ways, um, the scheme is quite well designed that leaving it in place isn't, in some ways shouldn't be too problematic for getting the economy going again. If you, the scheme covers the wages, 80% of the wages of workers who are furloughed by their employers. But if, to the extent that employers face other costs to their business, presumably they do want to get back up and running if the demand is there for their goods and services. So employers face an incentive to try and get their businesses up and running, even if there is an option of 
um, claiming on that furlough scheme if they really feel that they'd have no way of getting their employees back. So in some ways, the, what economists would describe as the moral hazard problem in the scheme is not um, too severe. Um, but Rishi Sunak has um, pointed to the need to start tapering the scheme in the longer term. And no doubt the reason that he's doing that is for some of the reasons that we just left off with um, in Martin was talking about, um, which is that one potential issue with the scheme is that uh, as it stands, um, the employer has to claim to the government for the furlough scheme. So if the employer wants you to come back to work, they can choose not to um, keep you on furlough and blow you off instead if you refuse to come back to your job. Um, on the other hand, um, if there is this slight standoff and concern on both sides about the safety of workplaces, um, the easy decision for employers, if an employee is saying that they are unwilling to come back to work because they don't think the work environment is safe, the easy resolution to that um, standoff between employer and employee is to simply leave the employee on the furlough scheme with the government picking up the tab for their wages. Um, so the government may be worried about that aspect of um, moral hazard in the system, that they are picking up the tab if if they can't resolve that standoff between employees and employers. Um, that would speak to the need to reduce the generosity of the scheme um, as time goes on and as it becomes uh, more and more feasible for businesses to get back up and running again from the summer onwards. I just want to pick up this this point about the immediate moral hazard or, or, or lack of it. Whether, uh, as we've we've already had MPs standing up in in Parliament saying, "Look, are you going to save the jobs of the uh, the twelve thousand jobs that may be going in the airlines and so on?" And at the times had an edit, editorial saying, "Look, it's going to be very difficult for him to resist in the autumn when he says this is going to end." Pressure from exactly those sectors. Are, that are most vulnerable and perhaps have to uh, lose jobs as part of the economic transformation that we're going through. It will be difficult, but it'll uh, short of there being a guarantee on a vaccine, it is just a really tough uh, decision that's going to have to be taken because if you if you get to that point, I mean the, the airline industry is uh, is is it would appear screwed not just in a three months to six month window, but in a three to five year window in terms of global demand and how people are going to behave in terms of business travel and, and leisure. So the decision that you're faced with on uh, on airlines, it's really tough. I'm not saying it's, it's easy at all. In September, October, unless something dramatic has, has, has changed, you, you, you simply cannot prop up the airline industry into into next year, considering all the other calls there are going to be on state spending. Uh, and I think it's just one of the, it's one of those industries that is also remember the airline industry is, is, is brilliant at creative destruction, very difficult for the people who are employed in the current airline industry, but most of the major airlines are, are made up of airlines which have, folded into each other, been taken over, been reconstructed. The industry will be, I, I would think, adept at reinventing itself over the next two, three years as slightly small as as a smaller. I don't think the government can um, can make it its business to prop up the airline industry over the course of two or three years. Short term help via the existing measures is fine, but lot but long term the industry is going to have to remake itself itself. 
And Gemma, on the point Ian was raising about the eye-watering uh, amounts of debt that the country may well pick up on this, where are you on the spectrum from um, uh, treated as war debt and to be paid off over generations, if you like, or this is something on the uh, a matter of public finances that the government fairly urgently is going to have to tackle? I think it's quite a complicated question. I think it's worth distinguishing why what we've got at the moment is quite different from the experience we had during the financial crisis and the increase in borrowing that we saw there that was then followed by a period of austerity. What the government has done at the moment is quite deliberately to put in place a huge package of support, the entire objective of which is to try and keep the economy on ice so that on the other side of the coronavirus lockdown, we can get the economy back up and running so that it grows and starts to generate tax revenues in future in the way that we hoped it would before coronavirus. So for all those reasons, it's essentially making a huge investment in meaning that in the future we have a good stream of tax revenues that comes back and can fund our future public finances. So if that works, then it's a big one-off um, increase in our stock of debt. But in the future, we would hope that annual borrowing comes down pretty quickly and we can get back onto a more stable footing. That was very different from what we had during the financial crisis, where there was a bit of short-term stimulus um, from the Labour government, but actually a big part of the increase in borrowing that happened and that was then sustained um, for future years was actually because we suddenly discovered that the UK economy was smaller and much less tax rich than we had thought before the financial crisis hit. It was a big structural hit to the economy that we had to adjust to in quite a permanent way. And that was why we, in a sense, we weren't re reacting by trying to pay down that the short-term stimulus we were having to adjust because we were just a lot poorer than we thought we were going to be. So I think that leaves us at the moment, if that story is correct, this is a big one-off investment um, that just pushes up our stock of debt. Um, I don't think it is a no-brainer to think that we can just uh, make no adjustments. Um, we already had a kind of position in the public finances, if you look back to the budget in March, which really um, set out a, a picture of public finances, which did not acknowledge the huge scale of um, the coronavirus hit. At that time, the government was essentially saying it was pretty happy to have taxes and spending set such that debt would just about stabilise at around 80% of GDP. So it was right on that kind of margin of a small negative shock would push you the wrong side of that and leave you with debt rising. If you push debt up another 20 percentage points of GDP, which this um, short-term coronavirus package may well have done, um, that puts you into uh, even more concerning territory on that margin where you're more susceptible to um, investors not wanting to loan to the UK government or wanting to charge higher rates of interest, or if you face some other shock in future that means you need to use your fiscal firepower, you have less of that left to use. And so I think that does put you in the, the territory of asking the question, how much do we need to tighten our public finances after all of this? Okay, so uh, reason to be concerned, um, if only for the old reason of the, the bond markets and uh, their support for us. So uh, uh, is on, on your radar for that. Ian, uh, briefly, uh, where, where are you on this? I, I think, this debate that is going to go on for a long time. Yeah, I, I, I think Gemma puts it really, really well. I mean, my, my concern is about, if you, if you compare it to the period after the Second World War, there were, obviously we had capital controls, so there was a way in which the UK um, state could manipulate the situation to, uh, to effectively 
shrink the the you know the size of that number, which I think was about two hundred and fifty percent of um, GDP of debt to GDP um, ratio, and over the course of forty years with you know pretty rapid economic, pretty steady economic growth, um, the number came came down. We're in a different situation now in that we are we obviously have a need for other reasons, open capital uh, markets. I think um, more than a quarter of, you know, uh, about, is it between a quarter and a third of UK debt sort of is held by, um, you know, primarily foreign investors. So we are at the mercy of, uh, to an extent of, um, of, of, of the bond markets. And I'm, I'm simply concerned about that. It's not going to be practical, is it, in the short term politically for anything like um, austerity to happen over the next sort of year. No, nor, nor does the Prime Minister seem inclined himself to use the word, never mind deploy the policies. Yeah, he's, that's not, he's not, he's, I always think Boris is more uh, Reaganite than he is Thatcherite, in that you remember famously Ronald Reagan said, that when asked about the national debt, well, it's big enough, big enough and ugly enough to take care of itself, which is a good joke, but did was underpinned by the fact that this is the world's you know reserve currency, the dollar. Mm. Um, we're not going to be in that. Uh, we're not going to be in that situation. So it's a, it's a really delicate, difficult balance that I know the Treasury and the bank are. Uh, you know they're, they're worried about it, and it's going to be the story of the next next decade at least. Well, I'm struck by the caution that you're both uh, mentioning there, because there's a lot of headlines this morning across right across the media spectrum about uh, not supporting much uh, move towards um, uh, tightening of uh, public finances. Though, though these concerns absolutely registered. Just as we wrap up the second section on the economy, Joe, uh, looking at the the um, the government's handling of all this, would you say that it's it, it's fair that, it, that the economic package has gone more smoothly than perhaps the health uh, and testing package? And what might we, if, if you agree, what might we draw from that? So I think it's fair to say uh, that certainly this week, the economic uh, side of things has gone more smoothly than the, the health restrictions. I mean, you know, it's fair to say that the government had quite large public support for its restrictions around lockdown. That was a relatively popular policy. And actually, just the decision to start easing it is a bit of a political risk for the government, because that policy was quite popular uh, amongst a lot of people. I think in terms of the the rollout, as as Gemma said, the, the way uh, the job retention scheme has been rolled out, um, and some of the other schemes, although not without problems, have been kind of designed for ease and getting support to people as quickly and easily as possible. Um, it's much, it's proved much more complicated to get testing capacity up um, in part because I think of the practical steps that you need to go through to get these things to exist. They're not decisions of government policy um, that can rely on existing mechanisms, but you need to build these facilities. And I think that's one of the really big challenges for the government in working through the exit strategy, um, particularly around the restrictions and some of the measures it wants to put in place around apps and around test and trace and the testing capacity um, is ensuring that the ministerial decisions and the policy doesn't get ahead of what the state is actually capable of doing 
and having in place. Um, it's going to be where, you know, testing in particular has been one of the big focuses. Um, but inevitably, if we start to see test and trace the app, there's obviously PPE, all of this stuff is going to come under the microscope. And it's going to be the UK government at the centre trying to roll out on a scale and at speed an enormous number of pretty complicated things. Um, and I do think, you know, we're going to get into it, I think, when um, we start talking about the Brexit um, uh, report that we've got out, that there are lessons in this for the government from how they behaved during Brexit um, and just the kind of mechanisms you need in place to keep uh, abreast of the pace of implementation going on all across government and at different within different departments across departmental boundaries that does make this a really, really difficult job. Let's come on to the final section and the point you mentioned, Joe, which is about Brexit. And we've got a new report out from Maddie Timot-Jack about the civil service after Brexit lessons from Article 50. It's about how the pressures of Brexit led to changes in, in the role of the, the civil service and how the relationship with ministers changed as well. Maddie, hi. Very good to have you with us. Hey. The headline of your report mentions the vulnerability of the civil service, and you go on to talk about about that uh, quite a bit. Can you just tell us a bit about about that and your main conclusions? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think just just to start, I, I want to just say that the reason that we sort of decided to do this report is really because you know 2016 to 2019 was a very tumultuous tumultuous period in British politics and and there was a huge sort of task facing the civil service which I will say on the whole it, it did a very impressive job you know it had to unpick this um, very integrated relationship between the UK and the EU and also prepare for all the changes or at least start the preparations for, for the changes that leaving the EU would entail but as you say I think one of the things that we really wanted to look at was how uh, the sort of political context left the civil service quite exposed and it was both sort of under under Theresa May but also Boris Johnson and, and I think really in slightly different ways but it leaves us in the same position it at does, the end. Yes. I mean under Theresa May and if we can all sort of cast our minds as far back as that it feels like a very long time ago <laughs> but you know it was only only last year um when she was still prime minister but we really saw cabinet government just grind to a standstill you know she completely lost her authority after the 2017 general election and, and we saw the government just absolutely unable to make decisions and within that environment it meant the civil service actually became more of a target for those outside of government critical of the government's Brexit policy and I mean we saw this manifest itself most strongly with Ollie Robbins uh, who was her chief negotiator where the sort of checkers white paper, there's government's vision for the for the UK's future relationship with the EU after it, after it was rejected by some members of her cabinet. He sort of became seen as the, the scapegoat responsible for developing that government policy, which was trying to knit together a very divided cabinet. And, and really, she didn't come to his defence at all. And as I say, he, he sort of became um, a sort of symbol for, for particularly those who don't didn't like her Brexit policy. Um, he sort of became a target for those criticisms. Um, but what is also quite interesting is that when we saw the change in Prime Minister, so when Boris Johnson um, took over, we saw a much 
much more united cabinet but the sort of battle between government and parliament became even more fraught and actually again we saw the civil service slightly left in the middle while they weren't necessarily sort of seen as um, architects of the government's Brexit policy in the way that they were under Theresa May um, the government's sort of insistence on uh, leaving the EU at the end of at the end of the Article 50 period, as it was then, the 31st of October, with or without a deal, despite Parliament passing legislation to try and stop this, meant the civil service was essentially left in a very difficult position. So we still saw... Okay, can you spell out for us what that difficult position is and and the kind, and the kind, and, and how the civil, how civil servants have expressed it to you, obviously in private conversations, but what they've said about that? Well, I think, I think a good example of this um, was the government communications. So we saw, even after the sort of so-called Ben Act passed um, in September, that said the government would have to seek an extension if they couldn't reach a deal with the EU. Um, that we still saw government communication saying the, the UK will leave the EU on the 31st of October. There was no sort of sense of doubt there. And, and I think it, it, did, it did sort of raise some quite interesting questions about whether, whether or not uh, that should have been government communication actually put out by the civil service. And it, it sort of, the challenge... I think for civil servants, in particular senior officials, is that there aren't really the tools available there to try and challenge the government um, when we see the government almost threatening essentially to break the law to to achieve its aims. And, and I think that's sort of one of the big fundamental questions really that we raise that actually we need to look into in more detail about whether or not there are the right tools there. I think, yeah, just to kind of add to that, I think some of the really interesting thing that came through is the kind of catch-all phrase for how you would define the role of the civil service is to serve the government of the day. Um, and the questions that Brexit threw up was under Theresa May, what does the government of the day mean if the government is a set of opposing factions <laughs> who can't agree with themselves? And where does that leave the civil service? Because what you ended up with is it was caught between these factions and ended up kind of taking a life of its own and getting... Um, facing attacks of its own. And then under Boris Johnson, again, serving the government of the day, what does that mean when the government of the day is opposed to parliament, which is supposed to be sovereign? And when there is conversations about the government uh, or alluding to breaking the law, how does that build into it? And this sense of serving the government of the day actually hides quite a few tensions um, that Brexit and the pressure and the political pressure of Brexit, I think, really exposed and I think we are likely to see these same tensions exposed time and time again when whatever the political incident of the day is starts to pull at them. Ian, what do you make of this? Do you think it, it's uh, a legitimate a sort of a protest, if you like, by the civil service? Or was it ever thus? These are institutions necessarily opposed to each other, always with a, a sort of a healthy tension. It's a healthy tension, but I, I, I mean, I've... I feel or felt at the time for the civil service, it became very fashionable among pro-Brexit people to attack the civil service and say and, and, and say that essentially the civil service was was running a sort of counter um, strategy uh, or running a sort of soft remain or soft Brexit strategy. Parts of the machine might have been. Actually, I think the weakness was just there wasn't political leadership civil service in my experience likes to be led um and if you look at the way in which look at margaret thatcher's experience actually really when it comes down to it those who were closest to her and who were with her longest uh were uh, senior civil servants so whether that that's um, Bernard Bingham or as press secretary or Charles Charles Pohl or Armstrong, 
Um, so it's not really, I don't think ideology is a barrier to this. They, civil servants want to work for someone who knows what they're doing, who's leading in a certain direction. And what happened between 2016 and then 2019 is that the, the system kind of disintegrated um, didn't fall didn't fall apart, but um, you know was really ceased to function properly. Do you think it's working now? I mean, some of the government scientists are essentially you know, government officials. Are they going to take the rap for some of this? Well, yeah, you've got a, you've a particular Dominic Cummings related problem, and someone who's written at length. The government's uh, prime minister's main advisor has written at length what he thinks about the civil service and regarding them as a block on um, as a block on on change. I do feel that there's um, that there's a debate to be had about what happened uh, latterly with the Jeremy Haywood um, civil service and the, the, the transfer to said, well, there does need to be. This I is think, between the two, the two cabinet secretaries. Yep. Yeah, I think, the, I think there, I think there, there will hopefully be a recognition after coronavirus that we do need to have a bit of a, a rethink about how senior t- talent is encouraged um, in the civil service, and whether the thing is w- whether whether the civil service responded um, as well as it might have done uh, during the coronavirus um, uh, crisis. I'm just not to distribute blame, but I think it will be an element in a public inquiry. Will just be how did the machine function? It won't just be about the the obvious failings of the of, of the politicians, and I think that. There will then have to be a discussion about what kind of civil service and what sort of machine we want. And Maddie, you had quite a bit of um, quite a few thoughts in this about um, uh, both some of the, the creativity and the flexibility that had come into the civil service over Brexit, but also how this might uh, play out in coronavirus. Yeah, I, th- I think I think one of the things that we we're quite interested in is is seeing how, particularly in trying to prepare for No Deal, both ahead of March in t- last year, but also October, how uh, the civil service had adapted to do that. So I think one of a very good example of this is the fact they just moved a lot of officials around. So they moved officials between departments and onto priority projects ahead of those No Deal deadlines. We sort of saw the civil service become more agile, to use use that term. And I think we definitely have seen how that has played out, sort of to the government's advantage in responding to coronavirus i think that you know this was a massive cross-government project and while it took a while as we say in the report necessarily for the for sort of officials necessary to recognize that across the board i do think we saw some positive developments in those ways of workings and, and you know things like setting themselves up to actually make very quick decisions um, in under high pressure environment. Again, we, we see that with coronavirus. I mean, one of the examples that's quite interesting that we looked at in detail was about um, Boris Johnson setting up the EXO cabinet committee. So, um, you know, having daily meetings that was was sort of focused on implementation rather than just policy decisions. And and Ian's already mentioned those implementation committees that were set up um, to, to respond to coronavirus. And I think, you know, the, the fact that officials also adjusted to those daily that daily rhythm by moving on to shift patterns again like we can see that that sort of experience um, as a useful practice uh, before um, dealing with coronavirus this year I mean I think the thing I would just add though is that 
while the government is so focused on uh, responding to coronavirus, dealing with the impact on the economy and, and sort of rolling out exit strategies, as you've all been discussing, um, one of the things that they've also got to do is still to, on the government's current timeline, prepare for the end of transition period and what that changing relationship with the EU will look like. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges this year. You know, Joe sort of mentioned the pressures put on the civil service in relationship with ministers, how, you know, when political environment becomes more forward, it's likely to happen again. And I think that's one of the things that we definitely will be looking at um, for the rest of the year to see how the government manages those competing priorities, but also how that sort of political impact might might place pressures on those relationships between ministers and civil servants again. Thanks for reminding us all of that, of the deadlines at the end of the year. And in fact, all kinds of Brexit related deadlines in June, theoretically which the government is going to have to comment on. Well, look, we're going to have to wrap it up there, but in the best possible way, we've created lots of questions that are not really loose ends, the, the, the very substance of what we're going to be talking about for weeks or months, what's safe or what's reasonable to think is, is safe when you go back to work, um, how to reform the economy, retrain people, what the future of the civil service is, what a future public inquiry might look like, and of course, how to pay for it all and how to get Brexit. Uh, done, if I can use that final phrase. Thank you all very, very much. Uh, my great thanks to Ian Martin, Joe Owen, Gemma Tetlow, Maddie Timont-Jack. Thank you all very much for listening too. Inside Briefing is going to be back next week and we're going to have some new IFG Live events for you too. On Monday, we bring together Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's Director of Communications during the first half of the new Labour government, and Craig Oliver, who filled the same role for David Cameron to weigh up the government's communication strategy during the coronavirus crisis. Do make sure you tune in for that. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one, and you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And you can find all our content at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So that's it for today. Visit one person if you want, play tennis with someone you live with, visit a garden centre, but do stay safe and, of course, alert. We'll see you next week. <laughs>